I'm Krista Tippett. Pentecostal Christianity has appeared as an influence on both sides of the current U.S. presidential campaign. Vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin has Pentecostal roots, and so do key staff people of the Democratic Party and the Obama campaign. This hour, we explore the origins, theology, and impact of this way of faith, which is changing the face of Christianity in ways its African-American founder, a son of slaves, could never have imagined. Once you have been touched by God at such a deep level, right down to the tongue that you speak and your ability to speak the language that you've been trained in all of your life leaves you, there is no turning back. This is Speaking of Faith. Stay with us. This public radio podcast is supported by the Fetzer Institute as part of its campaign for love and forgiveness. Online at loveandforgive.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin's Pentecostal background has been under scrutiny. But the Alaska churches she's attended are a small part of a vast, diverse, undertold religion story of our time. The CEO of the Democratic National Convention Committee and Barack Obama's Director of Religious Affairs are also Pentecostal, like one quarter of the world's Christians across every denomination. Pentecostalism is sometimes confused with fundamentalist Christianity, but it is historically distinct and spiritually different. It is emotional, personal, and populist. In Africa, Asia, and Latin America, where it's growing most rapidly, Pentecostal Christianity is often associated with emancipation for women and the poor. This is Main Street mysticism, as one sociologist puts it, and it began on the American frontier with an African-American son of slaves a century ago. From American Public Media, this is Speaking of Faith, Public Radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. In 2006, our production team went to the centennial celebration of the Pentecostal movement on Azusa Street in Los Angeles to explore the history and meaning of this faith. Today, we return to that journey to shed light on contemporary events in American politics and the world. On April 25, 2006, an overcast morning in inner-city Los Angeles, the Reverend Billy Wilson of Tennessee welcomed thousands of people to an open-air procession. They were there to celebrate the 100th birthday of the Pentecostal movement, of the Azusa Street Revival that broke out for three years in Los Angeles, starting in 1906. The Bible says, clap your hands, all you people, shout unto God with a voice of triumph. Amen! understanding of history is that when the revival broke out at this house, word spread through the neighborhood. They turned the porch into a pulpit and up to 800 people gathered on the porch and they were using it as a pulpit and the porch broke down. So they went down the road a little ways to 312 Azusa Street and the rest is spiritual history. Amen. Hallelujah. Pentecostalism is the largest and most influential religious movement to originate in the United States. There are over 100 Pentecostal denominations, but Pentecostalism is not essentially a set of institutions and beliefs. It is, in the words of believers, a charismatic, spirit-filled impulse and practice that has penetrated the spectrum of the world's Christian traditions. At its present rate of growth, one billion people will be part of this movement by the year 2025. The words charismatic and Pentecostal come from the Bible. The New Testament book of Acts records that the earliest followers of Jesus were visited by tongues of fire at the harvest feast of Pentecost, and this enabled them to speak suddenly to onlookers in all the languages of the world. Skeptics said they were drunk, but the apostle Peter interpreted this as a fulfillment of the Hebrew prophecy that God would pour out his spirit on all flesh, men and women, young and old, servant and master. 
thousands of people become Christian as a result of this testimony that's based upon this experience of these folk speaking in other tongues. So there's, right even in Acts chapter 2, there's this evangelistic expectation that uh, is consistent with what we find in Los Angeles in 1906. Cecil M. Mel Robeck, Jr. of Fuller Theological Seminary will be our guide this hour. Mel Robeck is ordained in the Assemblies of God, the denomination with which vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin was associated until 2002. He's also a leading theologian and church historian who has collected a singular archive of original Pentecostal documents and has written a definitive history of the movement. The early seeds were planted in 1901 in Topeka, Kansas, where the Reverend Charles Parham became fascinated by the earliest Christians' experience of gifts of the Spirit. The pivotal passage for him was the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthians about these gifts or charisms. They included wisdom, teaching, prophecy, healing, preaching, and speaking in tongues. Mel Robeck. Charles Parham had been a Methodist, and uh, there were a lot of Methodists that were concerned about the direction that the Methodist Church was going at that particular time. There, there was a, a move towards a very optimistic view of history, a move toward what would become the liberalism of the, of the 20th century. And uh, there were a lot of folk in the rural heartland that just could not identify with that. They, they had no ability to have a relationship with uh, people in government, for instance. They didn't have high finances. Uh, Most of them were not highly educated people. They were really kind of cut off from society. When you say an optimistic view of history, what's wrong with that? What was wrong with that for them? Well, in one sense, there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it was was absolutely the opposite of what a lot of people in the rural heartland were feeling at that time. It was a very pessimistic way. It was contrary to their experience. Precisely. You know, some of them were losing their farms. Their kids would go away to the city to get jobs. They would go to colleges. They'd come home with these strange and foreign ideas. They just felt like they were losing control of, of where life was. And okay. so, you know, in one sense, it produces the fundamentalist movement. In another sense, it produces the Pentecostal movement. And of course, it produces, I think, the modern liberal tradition within historic Christianity. So those are all coming in play. We think of Pentecostalism associated with the moment in Acts, with the right. tongues of fire and the speaking in tongues. But Charles Parham was really focusing initially on this important passage in 1 Corinthians mm-hmm. 12 through 14. And I, you know, I just revisited that as yes. I was thinking about meeting again. And that's, there's so much in there. Yes. Um, you know, as you say, it is diversities of activities. Right. The word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, the gift of healing, the working of miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues. And then that passage goes on to give this pivotal image of the body of Christ, which has all different kinds of gifts and manifestations and functions. Right. And it goes into 1 Corinthians 13, which is about love. Yeah, that's right. The guiding principle. And the primacy principle. Mm-hmm. of love. So it's really a very large vision. Yes, um, it is. When that gifts of the Spirit contains a lot of big ideas. Yeah, that's correct. And that's really what Charles Parham was uh, was about. I mean, he there were a whole range of groups that developed in the 19th century that thought that because things were beginning to turn downward, they, were, they had this pessimistic view, that the only way change was going to come would be with a return or a divine intervention of God. And uh, he was very much committed to that idea. And so what happens is you end up saying, well, if there are all these people out there and God is going, or the Lord is going to return, they're going to be caught without uh, hope. And so it's our job to get out there and and lead them into some kind of a salvation experience and so forth. We need power for that. Hmm. And that's what baptism in the Spirit was all about. And those tongues, in his theory at least, would uh, tell you, if you could identify what those tongues were, it would tell you where you were going to spend your time doing your evangelization and missionary work. We're going to pray that the anointing of God would start to be released in this city. I want you to pray out loud. Pentecostal style. Everybody at the same time, all right? Pray in the Spirit if you'd like today. Let the Holy Spirit work through you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your anointing. We thank you for your blessing this day. Hallelujah. We are here, Lord, to glorify you and to honor you. We ask you, Lord, to anoint this march. 
I think that, you know, this, this notion of speaking in tongues is perhaps, um, well, at the time was most in, both intriguing and frightening and strange Surely. to outsiders. And to this day, I would say, right. um, if people associate Pentecostalism with speaking in tongues, mm-hmm. this is the most exotic and strange and <laughs> frightening aspect of it. I mean, okay, you grew up in the late 20th century right. as a Pentecostal, Assemblies of God, which is the major, one of the, I think, the largest denomination that grew out of Azusa Street. Yeah, that's right. If you're thinking about it globally, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, in one sense, I suppose it is exotic. It certainly is not something that modernity and scientific method and so forth would look at that and say, well, you know, that's something that we can all work toward, or we can reproduce that scientifically in this, these sorts of ways. No, I think it's much more subjective than that in, at one level, and, and yet it's built out of a relationship that one has with God. And if you think about God as another person, in a sense, you know, that, that is that it is possible to have a personal relationship with that God, you're really talking about how does that encounter with God affect you? And it seems to me that you can look at that psychologically, you can look at it anthropologically, you can look at it in a whole range of ways and say there are possible answers to that. And I think psychologists and anthropologists have done a lot of work on that in recent years, and many of them come out with much more positive uh, assessment of it than what was in the past. But what I would say is that it's not a learned behavior in one sense of the word. And it can, in a sense, I suppose it could be understood as a learned behavior in that you are in the midst of a people, there is peer pressure, those kinds of things. But so many of the testimonies come when people are by themselves. You know, I was washing dishes at the sink and I was just praising the Lord and all of a sudden I started to speak or sing out loud and I couldn't understand what I was saying. And some of them would go on for hours doing that. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't require a group, it Mm -hmm. simply requires an encounter with the divine. Mm -hmm. And uh, we would call that or look at that as a kind of transrational form of speech. In other words, it bypasses the mind. The person who is actually speaking in the tongue doesn't know what he or she is saying. But given the readings from 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 that you cited, we understand it to be some form of language that is inspired by the Spirit that God understands. Something that you bring out in your book that's very interesting is that there's the phenomenon of speaking in tongues, which is connected to, you know, dreams and visions. I mean, there's a lot that's going on that has kind of a mystical sensibility about it. And you point out that there are those images also in the Hebrew Bible, um, as well as in the New Testament, and also in African spirituality. And a lot of the founders of this movement, and William Seymour himself, were African-American. Right. And, uh, you know, that glossolalia, which is the the technical term for speaking in tongues, also had some precedence in ancient Greece. So this this is also part of human experience in a way. Yeah, I I think that Pentecostals would like to theologize about this in keeping with Acts and 1 Corinthians, but I think that Pentecostals also have to expand their vision and look at this as a human phenomenon as much as anything. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the ways that I try to talk about it in, in my book is to think about it in terms of this encounter in which the closer we get, the more we have an inability to describe what it is that we're experiencing. In other words, we can start with ordinary language and say, well, you know, I was praying at such and such a time, or I was in this room, or I was sitting in this seat, or I was on the floor, or whatever it was. And then suddenly I find that most of these testimonies move to some kind of metaphor. You know, well, it was kind of like this. It was kind of like that, you know, like I had a big pipe fitted to my head and and all of a sudden I felt this rush of hot oil or I felt water bubbling up or, you know, something like that. And then the next thing you know, they're speaking in a tongue, babbling, if you would, incoherent to ordinary people sitting around them. And uh, it it strikes me as being somewhat similar to the experience that John the Revelator has uh, in uh, the book of Revelation in chapter 1, where the risen Christ appears to him. And he says, you know, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I fell down as one who was dead. And one of the common things in Pentecostalism was that people did, in fact, fall on the floor. They were what we call slain in the Spirit or resting in the Spirit or something like that. And then he says, and I turned, and I, you know, I heard this voice that I recognized, I turned, and here was this person who was like, and then he goes into this metaphorical description of who the risen Christ is, you know, with this tongue that looks like a... the move from prose to poetry. Yes, yes, yes. We we encounter the limits of language in many forms in in life. Yes. 
So I, I think there's a, a big parallel there theologically, but I, it doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, we are human beings, and I don't think we have plumbed the depths of our psychology or our anthropology that, in fact, we're very complex, and uh, I'm not at all surprised that we can be touched in these, in these sorts of ways and that it could be looked at scientifically as much as anything. Pentecostal historian Mel Robeck. How are you? Here are some reflections by a young Pasadena couple after worshiping at their small Pentecostal church. Speaking first is Shane, a graduate student in chaos theory at Caltech. Um, people don't look the same. There's a lot of diversity. You see a lot of mixed racial couples. I mean, I met my, my wife here, and she's a Latina. I'm a white guy. And... So I meet weekly with some guys just at my, at my place. We meet together, we pray, we go through the Bible, and um, we live like, like, like brothers. We share like brothers, even though you know, there, maybe nothing else would, would, would bring us together, but uh, the church brings us together. Well, I, I haven't seen my scientific training as being at odds with my faith. Uh, in fact, the scientific training teaches you that there is a truth. There is objective truth out there, and that's the same thing that we believe here. And the scientific training teaches me about the material world. This teaches me about the, about the spiritual world. And our lives are lived on both planes, the spiritual and the, and the material. You feel God's love here, you know. I think when I came here, I learned to worship. Yeah. I mm-hmm. really learned to worship and also, this, you know, speaking in tongues, being able to do that. Um, it was a huge release. I mean, it was just very fun. I was crying with joy, you know, and it was just very freeing. And so now it's made a huge difference. It made a huge difference in my life because God was even that more real to me. Sometimes when I'm very happy, it just comes out. (laughs) When I'm frightened, it comes out. And I just know I get God's peace because I know that he hears me. Shane and Jessica Ross at the Pasadena Foursquare Church. Watch our narrated slideshow, Foursquare Stories, and hear why they've found a home in this urban Pentecostal church that's at speakingoffaith.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. As Pentecostal Christianity has emerged as an influence on both sides of the current U.S. presidential campaign, we're revisiting our coverage of the origins and theology of this faith at its centennial gathering in Los Angeles in 2006. The founding figure of the modern Pentecostal movement was an African-American son of slaves, William J. Seymour. He attended the Reverend Charles Parham's pioneering classes on baptism in the Holy Spirit, though he had to sit in the hallway because he was black. In 1906, William Seymour accepted a call to ministry in Los Angeles, and he soon began to draw a vast sweep of humanity to what became known as the Azusa Street Revival. As the Los Angeles Herald described it at the time, with some scorn, all classes of people gathered in the temple last night. There were all ages, sexes, colors, nationalities, and previous conditions of servitude. And as the inheritors of that event commemorate it with a parade through the streets of Los Angeles, they also reflect a vast and improbable mix of humanity in one place with one purpose. There is a brass marching band from the Bahamas. There are Native Americans carrying the shofar, the sacred horn of the Hebrew Bible. There are Romanian Pentecostal teenagers from Orange County and a delegation from Uganda and Kenya. A young Christian rock group and a gospel choir perform on flatbed trailers. Azusa Street bikers come with shaved heads, leather jackets, and tattoos.
This Pentecostal birthday party processes past a Cambodian grocery store, a Mexican butcher shop, the Walt Disney Concert Hall, and Little Tokyo. There is fascination on the faces of the Los Angelinos who cluster on the sidewalks watching. I asked Pentecostal historian Mel Robeck what at the core of this frontier faith made its complex mix of rich and poor, its lavish juxtaposition of skin colors and cultures, possible? Well, in 1906, it certainly was unusual. I mean, the, the U.S. I mean, almost was— almost impossible, I think, in, in, unthinkable then. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, in many places within the U.S., states and local communities were governed by Jim Crow laws which kept people apart, black and white in Is particular. That, was that true in Los Angeles as It well? was not true in Los Angeles, hmm. you see. So that was unique. I mean, you know, there was prejudice and discrimination and, and, and racism going on in Los Angeles and at the time. And that came out in the newspaper reports of this gathering that you quote in your book, literally. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's it's right. It's all there. Yeah, yeah that's right. And, and so there are these underlying feelings that are anti-black, but the real racism and discrimination in L.A. at the time is against Mexican-Americans, on the one hand, who were at the very bottom of the totem pole, and the Chinese and Japanese, who had been brought over here to build the railroads in the West, and uh, you know they couldn't own property, they couldn't bring in their spouses or families, and and so forth. There was a huge amount of discrimination that that went right on up into the middle of the 20th century. Hmm. So uh, this was really unusual to find all of these kinds of people worshiping together. It was part of the vision, I think, that maybe uh, goes back to Parham, but I think much more clearly goes to William Seymour. He came out here with this vision, Seymour did, of establishing a congregation that was, in fact, multi-ethnic, multi-racial. And uh, the way he helped to bring this vision together was when that church opened its doors, he placed the pulpit right in the middle of the room. Hmm. Now, that pulpit was not a formal pulpit like we would see in a, in a mainstream church, but it was a couple of, of wooden boxes stacked on top of one another. And he actually would kneel down in there or sit there with his head inside the one box, you know, praying while everything was going on around him. In other words, the seats in the, in the congregation were in a circle so that everybody had somebody to look at. And it provided a real opportunity for conversation back and forth. One of the things that I find interesting is that uh, some of those conversations got to be uh, quite uh, heated. You have to stop and think. If the churches on the whole think that this is something that is past, that nothing like this has taken place, there are no books that Seymour can go to and say, how do you set up and develop a Pentecostal church? There there are no places that he can go, no seminars that he can attend, no self-help kinds of things. He's on his own. Right. It's experimentation. Every service is an experiment. And what he has as his text is his Bible. And so he can expect those kinds of things to break in, but what those mean and how they're to be interpreted is really up for debate. So the height of this revival, the real core of the revival happened over three years. And yes. I think you say sometimes on, on a Sunday there could be 1,500 people there. As is many that as right? 1,500. And, which is, again, a lot of people in 1906. When you talk about what happened there. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm curious about, you know, within your church or within your family, you know, mm-hmm. how would you tell your children how you understand what happened there? Well, you know, we use a lot of jargon, obviously, but, uh, you know, we would say that the Holy Spirit visited this place, touched people's hearts and lives when they had been touched in the way that we talk about it in terms of baptism and the Holy Spirit. They were utterly transformed. That is, once you have been touched by God at such a deep level, right down to the tongue that you speak and your ability to speak the language that you've been trained in all of your life leaves you, there is no turning back. And I think that what that did was it produced a lot of what we would call witnesses, people that can tell the story of what God did to me, and they are passionate and they are believable because they have, in fact, had an encounter that's very real to them, and they communicate that. So we see that as a consistent kind of compelling experience that makes it possible for people to live differently, empowered to do things that they couldn't on their own do. Pentecostal scholar Mel Robeck. I 
A leading Pentecostal minister, Bishop Charles Blake, remembered the Azusa Street Revival with worshipers at his 22,000-member West Angeles Cathedral in inner-city Los Angeles on a Sunday morning in 2006. Today, he is the presiding bishop of the six-million-member Church of God in Christ, a predominantly African-American denomination which traces its roots directly back through Azusa Street. It is now the fifth-largest Christian tradition in the U.S. And Bishop Blake gave an important speech at the 2008 Democratic National Convention in Denver, representing the perspective of a pro-life Democrat. His West Angeles Cathedral has an abstract steeple of stained glass rising from the ground to evoke the tongues of fire descending at the first Christian Pentecost. This sanctuary has a grand mosaic tile backdrop and stained glass portals. Most vivid of all are the people of all ages and backgrounds. They seem to exude a joy at being here. In addition to self-improvement and social projects in urban Los Angeles, the West Angeles Cathedral has a significant ministry to AIDS orphans in Africa. Among the visitors Bishop Blake recognizes in church this morning are the Latino mayor of Los Angeles, the president of the Harvard Foundation, a priest from Italy representing the charismatic movement within Roman Catholicism, and a delegation of 12 from the small African nation of Burkina Faso. It is so good to be together in the house of the Lord. It's so wonderful to worship him. Azusa is in the air. We're celebrating. We're celebrating. We're celebrating the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 4, where the Holy Ghost moved, and Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Ghost came in and fell and blessed the people of the Lord with the power of God. But we're also celebrating April, 1906, 1906, when here in the city of Los Angeles, God did it again. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I am thine, O Lord. I have heard thy voice and it told thy love to me. Our online editor, Trent Gillis, proposed that we rebroadcast this show after he watched video of remarks Sarah Palin gave at her former Pentecostal church, remarks that have been widely quoted in recent weeks. Watch the complete video of that speech and read Trent's post about it on our staff blog, SOF Observed. There you can also watch video of Pentecostal minister Leah Daughtry, who is CEO of the Democratic National Convention Committee. And as part of our Sound Scene series, view an audio slideshow of the members of a small Pentecostal congregation. They are PhDs and college students, prison ministers and business leaders. Learn more about the role Pentecostalism plays in their lives. Also, download an MP3 of this program for free through our email newsletter, podcast, or website. Find all these links and more on our homepage, speakingoffaith.org. After a short break, the difference between evangelicalism, fundamentalism, and Pentecostalism. Also, more on the social justice impulses at the origins of Pentecostalism and why they've been diluted to some extent in U.S. culture. I'm Krista Tippett. Stay with us. Speaking of Faith comes to you from American Public Media. Yeah. 
Speaking of Faith is supported by the Fetzer Institute as part of its campaign for love and forgiveness. Online at loveandforgive.org. And by gather.com, where friends keep up with the people, conversations, and moments that matter most. Public radio listeners are talking at gather.com. Welcome back to Speaking of Faith, public radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. I'm Krista Tippett. Today we're exploring the origins and theology of Pentecostal Christianity, which has emerged as an influence on both sides of the current U.S. presidential campaign. Vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin's Pentecostal roots are in the news, and both the Democratic National Convention and the Obama campaign have key staffers who are Pentecostal. In 2006, our production team went to the centennial gathering of the Pentecostal movement, which began on Azusa Street in Los Angeles in 1906. It is now changing Christianity and culture worldwide, most rapidly in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. The centennial festivities were attended by representatives from over 100 nations, including these African delegates. Pentecostalism did not emerge from the theological impulses that gave rise to evangelical and fundamentalist Christianity. It does not primarily stress beliefs and doctrine, but life changed through a direct experience of God. The early Pentecostals were members of the holiness tradition, breakaway Methodists. The holiness movement spawned the Salvation Army and formed some of the earliest abolitionists and champions for women's suffrage. Pentecostals who broke from them insisted as well on the biblical gifts of the Spirit, including speaking in tongues. They take these as sources of spiritual power to face the challenges in human life and a changing world. Pentecostal historian Mel Robeck is frank about how this religious revolution, like every revolution, has fallen short of some of its own highest ideals. Black, white, and Latino Pentecostals who came together spontaneously in 1906 soon worshipped apart. Over time, American Pentecostals have become more affluent and mainstream and more closely associated in places with conservative evangelical Christianity. In that process, Robeck and others suggest, some have diluted or lost the original Pentecostal values of egalitarianism, pacifism, and social justice. Though here in Los Angeles and around the world, Pentecostalism retains a special appeal for people at the edges of society, authority, and religion. Participants testify to its power to fight addiction and the breakdown of families. In Latin America in particular, Pentecostalism is often associated with social justice movements that are emancipatory for women, the poor, and others who've been historically disenfranchised. Mel Robeck. Pentecostalism is, in a sense, a religion that is made for the people on the margins. Uh, you know, and why uh, is that? Say something. I, I'm not quite sure why that is. I, I would have to say part of it has to do with worldview. We, we tend to think in elitist terms uh, most of our time. We t- and I, I talk to my students about what does it mean to talk about feminism and the role that women play, or what does it mean to be talking about postmodernity. Ninety percent of the world could care less about either one of those things. They're much more concerned about where they're going to get their next meal, how they're going to dress uh, for the day. I mean, do they have clothing enough? Do they have enough to heat their their homes? Uh, What are they going to do that would help their children to have a better life than they have? And uh, in so many places in the world, you know, it's a conflict between good and evil, between good spirits and bad spirits and so forth. What Pentecostalism does that so many other groups have done is to take that kind of a worldview very, very seriously. You know, we talk about good spirits and evil spirits as well. We talk about the fact that that Christ came to break the chains of any kind of spiritual bondage, that exorcisms can take place, that that these are expected and not simply something that are psychologically made up, and that we are so modern that uh, we identify 
the mnemonics simply in systems of injustice and so forth, uh, that, that we personify them in a sense. And that means that there's an appeal to at the grassroots for every person who's under some kind of an oppressive system or in some kind of an oppressed situation. Then they look at this and they say, aha, there's hope for me here. Because it is a very liberating force very for much people, so. especially in... Um, in developing the developing countries. Con- in mm-hmm. the developing world. I mean, let's talk about women, all okay. right? Because all right. we don't, in this country, associate people I don't uh, can't think commonly associate Pentecostalism and, let's say, feminism. No, that's right. Even though what you're describing to me, what we're talking about here that happened on Azusa Street, which right. is very few blocks away from us here, mm-hmm in 1906 was that Pentecostals were ordaining and sanctioning the full ministry of women a hundred years ago. Yes. um, Half a century or more before some of the most liberal churches in this country. Why is that not something that people know about Pentecostalism? And I know in other countries, women are very often drawn to Pentecostalism for this reason. Well, not only uh, are they drawn to it, but they become they provide huge uh, leadership. Yeah. Uh, and I dare say that those who have controlled the teaching of history and religious history in particular in the United States, I mean, it's very difficult to find in any major history of the United States any real treatment of Pentecostalism. Mm-hmm. I mean, most seminary students today... Which is incredible given its global importance. Given its global importance, yeah. yes, it, it is incredible oversight. But is, for example, this empowerment of women within Pentecostalism, is that as much a part of the movement now in this country as it was 100 years ago? You know, it's and a, if it, not, why not? It's a good question. Uh, it's a real mix of things right now, and it, it, it worries me quite a bit. You know, I think the feminist movement did a great deal of good, not only for the nation as a whole, but for mainstream historic churches in particular, because it did, in fact, provide them with the opportunities, equal opportunity in the pulpit, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, We had that already. But what happens is that the feminist movement, I think, has identified too broadly with a variety of other movements that Pentecostals cannot identify with. Personal uh, rights, you know, uh, the abortion issue, the gay issue, all of those kinds of things kind of got identified in relationship to the feminist movement in ways that Pentecostals had very difficult time looking at. So there are now some people within the Pentecostal tradition who say we shouldn't be doing this because it identifies us with the modern feminist movement. Instead of looking at their roots and saying, wait a minute, we got this from the Bible and we can still be who we are and we can we can have real feminists within the Pentecostal tradition, there should be no necessity to, you know, in a sense, lift up women here because uh, they founded denominations. Look at Amy Seppel McPherson as a great example. Right, right, 1920s. Uh, yes, exactly. I'm sure that you're aware of this. I'm very aware in media in this country that uh, the words Pentecostal, evangelical, and fundamental are often interchanged. Yes, yes. But in fact, those are very th- three very different theological very different and spiritual yes, streams. Very different. Mm-hmm. I mean, how would you describe, um, just clarify, make that distinction okay. between evangelical, Pentecostal, and fundamentalist. Right. What for you as a Pentecostal is important? Um, there are a couple of things. Uh, it, it, evangelicalism, in, in a sense, is a certain form of fundamentalism. It's broader. It has more of a social conscience. Uh, it's much more at home accepting evidence coming from social scientific studies and so forth. But so if you, if you really go back to two strands, that is, one being fundamentalist and one being Pentecostal. The fundamentalists tend to be much more rationalistic. There is a tendency to talk about real literalism that has to be stacked up rationally in such a way that everything connects, you know, and if one block falls, the whole castle falls down as well. So you have to have this kind of strong tendency toward the inerrancy of Scripture, toward the the literal interpretation of Scripture, and all of these blocks must fit together. With Pentecostals, there's much more flexibility. We have a certain tendency to think that rationality is not necessarily good. Pentecostal historian Mel Robeck. Just let it fall. Hallelujah. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. As Pentecostal Christianity has emerged as an influence in the lives of people on both sides of the current U.S. presidential campaign, we're revisiting our 2006 coverage of the Pentecostal movement at its centennial gathering in Los Angeles. 
The transformative whole-body spirituality of this movement was alarming to many from the very beginning. Some of the early Pentecostals were confined to mental institutions. Around the world today, conversion to Pentecostalism is a controversial and sometimes persecuted choice. Historian of Latino Pentecostalism, Arlene Sanchez-Walsh, writes that from the earliest days of the Azusa Street Revival in 1906, Pentecostalism shocked Protestant America. Pentecostalism was anti-intellectual, anti-rational, ahistorical, non-liturgical, and allegedly sensual, and therefore morally dangerous. She continues, Evangelicalism had its own language, imagery, institutions, and expectations that could not accommodate Pentecostalism's spiritual tidal wave. There have been two new waves of the Pentecostal movement in the century since the Azusa Street Revival. Most influentially, in the 1960s, after an Episcopal priest in Northern California began to speak in tongues, a charismatic renewal washed across all the Christian denominations. Today, only half of the world's 500 million Pentecostals belong to Pentecostal churches. The rest are Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Eastern Orthodox, and every Christian variation in between. Mel Robeck finds himself today to be an ecumenical diplomat as much as an historian. In several countries in Latin America, Pentecostal Christianity is overtaking the historic majority of the Roman Catholic Church. And Mel Robeck is co-chair of the International Vatican Pentecostal Dialogues that have resulted. My involvement in the, in the Vatican Pentecostal Dialogue uh, really came about as a result of a dream or a vision that I received in the middle of the night. Okay. Uh, you know, my denomination at that time had bylaws that prohibited, well, prohibited is too strong, but certainly uh, I was open to possible discipline by engaging in any kind of ecumenical relations in any kind of formal setting. And yet when I was called on the carpet in a sense and uh, asked to sit before the executive presbyters and tell my story, share where this vision came from and what I thought it meant and the kind of fruit that had come out of it, they took a vote. And uh, that vote sustained the ministry that I'm involved in, even though the bylaws basically said you shouldn't be doing these kinds and of things. And what was that dream and that calling? What was you felt called to do? Uh, Why was it important? Well, at that particular time, I had been uh, uh, elected president of the Society for Pentecostal Studies. It was in 1982, and I, I was really struggling with what to talk about. I was concerned about a particular split between an older group and a younger group of scholars and how they didn't value one another. And I, I had been praying and asking God, uh, please help me to give a word that will bring some sense of uh, healing in this rift within the society. And, uh, you know, I was awakened in the middle of the night uh, with uh, Jesus standing at the end of my bed saying to me, Mel, I want you to talk about ecumenism. And I, and I said, you know, Lord, I... Which is reaching I, out to other churches. Yeah, other I don't know anything about this, and how is this relevant? You know, I went back to sleep. And he woke me up again with the same words on the same night saying, I want you to speak about ecumenism. And I said, Lord, you know what our bylaws say. Here I am in the assemblies of God, and I'm going to get in trouble if I do what you're, what you're asking me to do. And I went back to sleep. And he woke me up a third time with the same words. And I finally thought, you know what? Here I call myself a minister of the gospel. And if Jesus is asking me to do something, I'd better do it. I mean, this is what I'm supposed to do. huh? And so... I said yes, and I went back to sleep. The next day, I went to my office, and I began looking, thinking, what in the world can I say about ecumenism that will uh, bring about the healing of this rift? 
I didn't have a clue. So I thought, well, how do I even approach this? Because everything I'd ever heard about ecumenism within the Assemblies of God had been negative. So I began looking at the earliest documents that I had. Everywhere I went, there was this appeal to John chapter 17, where Jesus is praying to the Father and he is saying, you know, Lord, I want you to keep them and I want them to be one as we are one, okay? And it suddenly struck me that the very essence, the very core of the whole question about unity between Christians is wound up in that prayer of Jesus. And that prayer was everywhere in Pentecostal literature. And I thought, well, how in the world did we get from there to where we are today, which is so anti-historic uh, churches and so forth, and even against one another? And it was the kind of tracing out of that history, which became my presidential address. And what I said was, you know, there are things that we could give to that larger body, and there are things that we could receive from that larger body, and we don't need to be ashamed of who we are as Pentecostals because what we have is real. I want to ask you from your you know, life spent in this church as a, as a worshiping in this mm-hmm. denomination, loving this denomination, right. and also as an historian and a scholar, right. you know, as you look at this global future of Pentecostalism, Pentecostalism now, I think, is so influential. What a responsibility comes with that. Right. What power Yes. for something that has started so spontaneously. Yes. Right. What is your greatest hope and what is your greatest fear? Uh, what, what are you concerned about yeah. working on in your church so that that power unfolds in a way that you feel is consonant with the spirit of this religion that started 100 right. years ago here? Um, I, you know, I think it's a tendency of all groups that move upward in terms of their social status. You know, I mean, w- one of the things that has been wonderful about Pentecostalism is that it is, in a sense, so undiscovered. And it is not, has not been uh, self-conscious about what power it has. I mean, one of the things that's unique about Pentecostalism is that it doesn't have to look exactly the same everywhere. And it doesn't. And it is. And it is very no. adaptive to culture. Very and to adaptive human to lives. Exactly. The way they are. Right. And therefore, I think it can play different roles in different regions. It doesn't have to have a kind of global political presence. Right. You know? Well, I mean, I think about your work with the International Vatican Pentecostal uh-huh. Dialogues, and fine, Pentecostals can be apolitical, but in in countries in Latin America where um, there have been a majority of Catholics right. and the Roman Catholic Church has been such an important social force, right. which has also meant that the judges and the presidents and the, the Absolutely. police chiefs and the and the generals have been Catholic, right. and they will now be Pentecostal. I mean, that has political ramifications, whether Pentecostals want it or not. Yes, absolutely. It, it does. Uh, you know, and I would say that the, even the worship in Catholic churches these days is very different than it was before, we'll call it charismatic renewal within the Catholic right. Church, which is a, a direct relationship with Pentecostal movement. You know, mm-hmm. Pentecostals within the Catholic Church now number, I think the, the last statistic I saw two weeks ago was 130 million people. That's better than one in ten identify with this kind of Pentecostality mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Of, of, of Roman Catholicism. I think uh, my job is to help people understand where they come from and why it is that it's important for them to be in touch with their roots, because their roots will help to direct the future in, in where they're going. And those roots are rich, and they are broad, and they are inclusive, and uh, you know they, they engage people at all different kinds of levels. There is this social conscience that's present there, and I think it's a matter of uh, helping them to understand and, and tap into that. And, and point them to some good directions in the future. Okay. Not not simply to assume that they have all the answers right up front. Okay. And that is part of the tradition too, that it the is. answers come. Yes, the answers come because the Lord leads. Oh spread the tidings round wherever man is found. Cecil M. Robeck, Jr. is professor of church history at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. He's the author of The Azusa Street Mission and Revival, The Birth of the Global Pentecostal Movement. continue and deepen our exploration of religion as a factor on both sides of the current U.S. presidential campaign in upcoming programs in early October. Across the years, we've featured diverse Pentecostal voices on Speaking of Faith, and we've gathered those voices together on our website, speakingoffaith.org. 
Listen to Emory University professor Robert Franklin talk about the rise of Pentecostal worship among African Americans. Hear sociologist Margaret Paloma on her study of modern-day Pentecostals, whom she sees as Main Street mystics. And find a fascinating web-only conversation with historian of Latino Pentecostalism, Arlene Sanchez-Walsh. You can also download my complete, unedited interview with Mel Robeck and this produced program for free through our podcast, our weekly email newsletter, or our website. That is speakingoffaith.org. The senior producer of Speaking of Faith is Mitch Hanley with producers Colleen Sheck, Shiraz Janjua, and Rob McGinley Myers. Our online editor is Trent Gillis with web producer Andrew Dayton. Kate Moose is the managing producer of Speaking of Faith, and I'm Krista Tippett. Speaking of Faith is supported by the Fetzer Institute as part of its campaign for love and forgiveness. Online at loveandforgive.org. Additional funding is provided by the Ford Foundation, a resource for innovative people and institutions worldwide, on the web at fordfound.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. And the George Family Foundation, funding innovative ideas in integrative medicine, education, and spirituality in everyday life. Speaking of Faith is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation. Next time, we'll delve into the world and meaning of Judaism's approaching High Holy Days, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, 10 days known as Days of Awe. Please join us for the next Speaking of Faith. American Public Media. <laughs>